Well, it's good to see you this weekend, and uh, my goal in today's message is that the quality of the message will not match the title of the message. Because I picked the title, and if you look at it, you'll see what I mean. So we're in part seven of our Discovering God series, and, and as a Hebrew Bible Old Testament enthusiast, the book of Exodus, to me, is such an imperative book to understanding the whole biblical narrative and to understand what God is doing and calling us into transformational encounter with the presence of the Lord. And so this book is so important for us to go through, and I believe it's so important for us to go through right now, because we've moved from the miraculous response of God to the people's suffering in Egypt, to his calling and protection of Moses, to the revelation of the name Yahweh at the burning bush, into a powerful deliverance from Egypt, from the Pharaoh, with plagues and deliverance through the Red Sea, and now all that good that Bishop Parnell was talking about last weekend. If God made you free, you're free indeed. We've went through all of that. And what a discovery that the people of Israel and that we have experienced of God and his power and his purpose. Yet, after this first amazing victory came the first big tests and a string of grumbling that came from the people of Israel because they were physically free, but they were not yet mentally or emotionally free. They moved from these rich truths into new, real hurdles. And so the challenges that we're actually gonna explore this weekend is gonna come up in four different episodes. And our narratives are gonna go from Exodus 15:22 all the way to Exodus 18:27. And so we're only gonna really glance over a lot of these. So you can kind of glance over those while I'm talking because we will not read everything together. But these narratives that we're gonna talk about, they can be framed by a few specific lines that give us the context for these episodes. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 15, verses 25 and 26. If you're using the Bibles from inside of our room, you can be on page 50, 58 is where we're going to start. But this is what Exodus 15, 25, the latter half of 25 says. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And so as the people of God have left this amazing deliverance, it's only been three days out from the Red Sea, and God responds, and you're going to find he cares for them, and he sets this challenge to them. And he sets it first as a statute and a rule, which is important because they have not yet received the covenant. We're going to be getting into that next week. But they haven't yet received the covenant, but he frames it as, I need you to be a people that listens. I need, to be, I need you to be a people that does what that do what's right. You learn how to practice. He's asking for loyalty, for obedience, for trust. Not just based on the moments in front of them. Not just based on the circumstances of the day, but on what he's done before. Are they willing to pay close attention to God's will and to please him by following him and living in his way? To live out that part of the Lord's prayer where we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what he's calling them to do. And there's more references to this test 
In chapter 16, verse 4, Moses will say this again. He'll say what God had said and say that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Or if you were to jump to 17.3, Moses will ask the people again, why do you test the Lord? Because they tested the Lord by saying, is he among us or not? So there's a whole lot of testing of Moses, of the people, of God, of you, of me. And I don't know how you feel about testing. I don't know how you feel about God's testing. I'm not a fan. <laughs> the, the, the term itself is this term in Hebrew, nisa, and it means to undergo an experience, to be inspected, to call something into question. And when God is testing people, he's inspecting, he's taking us through something to see how you encounter him. This is not an IRS audit. This is not a Scantron test. This is not an essay test. This is not a trial This is God going, where are you and I in our relationship? How do you approach the reality of who I am in my power, who I am in my promise? How do you treat the Lord of the universe? How do you treat the Lord, your deliverer? Do we treat him as just another human, weighing and judging him to go, well, can you really do what it takes, God? Do you really have all all we need for you to do? Like, these are the types of questions that the testing brings. And when God tests people, he doesn't do it for his own benefit. He does it for their benefit. Because it's through the passing and failing of tests that people of God learn the nature of obedience that he requires of them. And so God takes us through. And you're going to find in these narratives we go through after all this amazing deliverance that God is testing them as he leads them in odd directions through hard places without explaining why. Does that feel familiar? Where God takes you, not on the path that you expected him to take you, and he doesn't explain why, and it's hard, and he does that to develop a willing trust in him, a full willing trust in him. And I don't think a lot of us realize that, and I don't think a lot of us permit this to be carried out. Why? Because we desire control. We have been culturally shaped to get control, to get security, to get clarity on our own strength. We constantly are being tested by God because we are constantly testing God ourselves. And so this is where I want you to be reminded as we walk into these narratives that where is the strongest engine of faith development in our lives? Is it when things are successful and smooth and clear? No. It's usually in the uncertainty. One scholar, Dr. Doug Stewart, says, it's necessary to learn faith while confused, afraid, and desperate, not just in theory, but under pressure of actual conditions where survival is uncertain and faith is tested to the limit. That is when our true nature is shown under testing. And so God is here to train people how to practice and grow in their faith by God and of God. And so this whole test of God or by God sets the tone of everything we're talking about because the first 15 chapters of Exodus have focused on God's move to deliver and save and rescue the people. But now the book is moving into a spot that we call in the Christian life sanctification. This is the process of being made more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, to be made into people that are holy, to be made into people that are passionate about following after and serving their God, to have exclusive commitment to Yahweh. However, if people think that God 
is demanding a behavior that's against our intuitive sense of what's right or pleasurable or deserved or reasonable or it's not that bad, it's easy for us to not take his commands or his direction seriously. And what's scary about that is that's when we start not taking God seriously. And what happens is the old ways seem attractive. You're going to find that the people of Israel are going to be looking three days out and going, maybe we should go back to Egypt. Maybe we should go back to slavery. But don't we do the same thing? We go, ah, when it comes to really what you're asking me to be and do, God, I feel like it's easier to just go back to sin. <laughs> it's more attractive. It's easier. And you have to understand that so many other passages outside of Exodus in the Old Testament talk about this. Deuteronomy 6, 16 Psalm 95, 9 to 11, Psalm 78, and Psalm 106, they're all going to echo the truth about this attempt to trust the Lord, or this attempt to test the Lord. And, and it's going to be people that are forgetting what God had done. And because of that, when they start forgetting, they cease to trust, and we cease to pray. And instead, we demand, and we doubt, and we bend God's decrees, and we behave as if God's acts have never happened. And all of these things remind us that when we forget the act of rescue and, we, re, and we, we forget the significance of what that means, we go into a spin. And so I know one thing I'm always telling people when I talk about evangelism or I talk about the gospel is I always remind people that when we are dealing with the gospel, you have to preach the gospel to yourself often and clearly because you forget how are you going to be able to go and tell some other person about the rescue and the salvation of Jesus if you are not repeating it to yourself every day, clearly, or at least once a week, and not waiting for Pastor Lance or Pastor Brian or Pastor Judah or anybody else to do it for you? We have to repeat it to ourselves often and clearly. And you're going to see in these texts that the people complain and they grumble. And we don't want to be people that let current circumstances define our ultimate reality. We don't want to be people like that. And you're going to find Israel's going to fumble through these tests. I fumble through these tests. You fumble through these tests. But as we see across Scripture all the time and even in the present, we have a God who is merciful, who even with the grumbling and complaining, he still brings them covenant. And he still shows his presence. So let's get into these narratives. We're going to walk through the first episode out of four episodes we're going to walk through. And this is the people grumbling against Moses at Shur. Sure, we'll talk about it. So Exodus 15, I know, dad joke. So Exodus 15, 22, let's dive in. It says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water, and when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So they leave the Red Sea, and you have to understand, there's a whole set of lakes and marshes just north of the Red Sea, even the current Suez Canal. And a lot of scholars believe that they were right near an area called Lake Timsah, and that the people have now started moving east into the Sinai Peninsula, and they've made their way into the northwest part of the Sinai Peninsula, into this specific wilderness. And they get three days out from the Red Sea, and they run out of water, and they come upon undrinkable water. And it tells you that four times in verse 23. How do we know that? Because if you noticed, it mentioned that term, marah, three times. And then it mentioned in English one time, bitter. 
Well, all four of those, it says marah in the Hebrew. Four times it's telling you that the water is bitter. It's undrinkable. And so the people move from disappointment to no water to panic, and they grumble. And this term grumbling, we have to stop and talk about it for a moment. It's this term in Hebrew, loon. And it occurs exclusively in episodes of the people wandering in the wilderness. People grumble when they're in a wilderness experience. And it means to express dissatisfaction. It's a very human term in its core. But this is what's interesting, is it's expressing dissatisfaction with spiritual things. That's interesting, because this looks like it's just about water. No, it's much deeper than water. It's expressing dissatisfaction in something deeper, in God. And that's what's happening. And so we have to understand that when we grumble, when we complain, this is not just venting. It's making a statement. And for Christians to complain, it's bringing God's leadership and intent into question. But sometimes we are so, um, we would rather have the familiarity of bondage and addiction and dysfunction and exploitation and chaos than actual freedom. And so we grumble because freedom demands a maturing process. And we think we want to be free, but then when things don't go the way we think it should be, we complain, we grumble, and we blame God because it's not all the ways we expect. Because we only see what we don't have right now and not what we already do have or what God has already done. And so when we grumble, we live from our stomachs. We live from our needs at the, sem- at the center. Grumbling is a self-centered expression. And we should not judge our circumstances by how we see them. We have to learn how to see them the way God wants us to see them. Because he's trying to teach us to look at a bigger picture rather than our own narrow, doomed version of reality. But we're so used to seeing our version of things. And it sucks. And so we grumble. And some of us, we're really good at doing that internally. And I admire you. And then some of us, we only know how to grumble externally. And some of you are thinking of someone right now. But think of yourself. And then some of us, we struggle in our current day and age that we grumble publicly. Because we have platforms to do that and to invite other people to grumble with us. We have to deal, though, with this reality. And some of you are thinking this, that, but when I grumble, things change. So I should grumble because we were enabled, whether it was from our family or our jobs or somewhere else, that we learned that if we grumble, things will change. That the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right? That that if we grumble enough, things are going to change. And we we get so built on that. But when we do this with God, we're missing something. And this is our fill in the blank for this weekend. When we grumble, we miss the formative lessons of our always present Lord. When we grumble, we miss the formative lessons of our always present Lord. So let's talk through that some more. Let's go back into the story. Moses cries out to God, and God goes, look, a tree. Push the tree in the water or throw this log in the water, and the water goes from bitter, from like LaCroix, to sweet, to Dr. Pepper. (laughs) And you're seeing that God cares and God provides, but this also is attesting to Moses' empowerment as the leader of the people and one who's obedient. But even more, if you jump ahead to verse 27 of chapter 15, Just a day later, they show up to another place called Alim, where there's 12 springs of water and 70 date palms. 
Had the people been patient, they would have seen God was taking them to a place with more than enough water. But they would grumbled in their circumstances in the moment. But now let's take a step backwards one more verse to verse 26. Because in the end of that piece on testing, God tells them something in a way they can understand who he is. He says, you can discover me as Yahweh Rophekah, the Lord your healer, the Lord your physician, one who brings things together, one who mends, one who makes things whole. I want to joke that in these chapters we're going to go through, he's almost more like a nutritionist physician because he's going to bring them water and bread and meat, and he's going to have Moses raising a staff and doing a workout, and you're going to have like all this kind of nutritional type of stuff. But this term healer is one who functions as a mender, as a restorer in all ways, physical and beyond. And so all these episodes of thirst and hunger and panic and tension, they're all tangible things that are wearing not just to the body, but to the mind and the hearts and the spirit of the people. And we all have circumstances that I'm not even aware of all the ones happening in this room that are beating against us. And they're different than the mere lack of water and bread, but they're breaking us down in all the same ways. And so when God says, I want you to know me as Yahweh Rophekah, the Lord, your healer, we can commit to someone. And when I say commit, I mean absolute, total surrender. Trusting in him to change things. Trusting in him to provide and to clarify that we may find restoration in ourselves for the day to day. Because he's a God that speaks life. He's a God who provides hope. He's a God that mends the pieces together. Not so everything is always comfortable and perfect. Because sometimes that's what we're asking God to do. Make my life comfortable. Make my life luxurious. And God's going, I actually just want to mend my relationship with you and your relationship with me. And so when you're asking for God to heal, it's a whole healing. That point where even when things are hard and there's problems and questions and fear, you still feel right because you know the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? I hope you can. This is a God who can heal the hurts of our families and our nation and our businesses and our churches. But most importantly, what Isaiah 1.5 talks about, he's a God that can heal the sickness of sin. And that's the type of God that people can encounter if they can move past the grumbling. But let's move on to episode two, where the people grumble again now in the wilderness of sin. And it's not sin as you think about it. So chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, they enter the wilderness of sin, and now it's been 30 days since the Passover, since the last plague that would finally get them out of Egypt, and the whole congregation grumbles again. Look at verse 3. This is what they say. Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I think this is so crazy. They acknowledge the presence of Yahweh in Egypt and everything he did, but then they look here now and they go, but you're not here in the wilderness. If I was Moses, I'd be like, what's that pillar of cloud over there? What's that pillar of fire at night? Did you, three days ago, Red Sea, come on, right? Like, like you would think that this would happen, but they had forgot that his presence is leading them and is there, and they forgot that he has the power to affect the natural elements around him. And I don't know if they're trying to be rhetorical or persuasive or if they literally feel this way. 
can't they realize that the Lord is directly there with them? And when I read that, I feel like the Spirit automatically slaps me across the face and goes, do you? Do you realize my presence is right here? So they need work. I need work. You need work. Amen? (laughs) And so they want mere food. And obtaining food in the desert is different than how they'd obtained food for the last 400 years. So all of this is counterintuitive to them because they're used to irrigation along the Nile. They're used to being able to grow crops and then kind of plan out for the months. They don't know how to depend on the land the way that their forefathers did as Bedouins, as nomads that wandered and had to depend on Yahweh to provide every day. They had to relearn this. And so this mindset brings them to a spot that they're willing to return to Egypt to die, which I hope you can catch something in that. It's not just to return to slavery. They're saying, we would rather go back to Egypt and die in the plagues or die in the Red Sea than die of hunger. Ooh. But look in verses 4 to 12. You're going to learn that they hear that God is going to bring them night and day provision. I'm going to start at verse 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. So again, it puts that lens of test on. Jump over to verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? Now we'll talk about some of the other verses in a moment. But the purpose of God's provision in this relationship is to discover Yahweh once again, to discover the Lord. Verse six makes it really clear. At evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out in the morning and you shall see the glory of the Lord. If you jump over to verse 12, God's gonna say to them again there, you shall know that I am Yahweh Eloheinu, the Lord your God. And so all of this is underscoring Yahweh's role as a deliverer, as a listener, as a provider, But they needed to know him again and to hear this, that he is the one who saved you. He is the one who acts. And in the same way that he created morning and evening in the very beginning, in the morning and evening, he's going to bring you food. He needs them to know who he is so that they can learn to trust him afresh as they see his presence now daily. But verses 7 to 8 really get into the meat of the issue, that their grumbling is against Yahweh, which he heard If you notice in verses 7, 8, and 9, it makes it really clear that God heard their grumbling because he's a God that's paying attention with an intent to act. Yes, he heard them when they were in slavery, but he also hears them when they're grumbling against him in dissatisfaction. Now, verses 7 and 8, you have Moses and Aaron kind of trying to get out of it, and they're saying, what do we matter? That's the literal Hebrew, that you are grumbling against us. They want to correct this false grasp that people think that Moses and Aaron have led them into the situation. But it's also raising a question. Do you feel that we're not listening to the Lord? Or do you just not believe the Lord is directing any longer? Verse 8 makes it actually really clear. Your grumbling is against the Lord. And I want you to see something that the writer is doing very purposefully. 
Because one of the things that's happening is three times he makes it clear that he's going to provide food in the morning and the evening. And three times he makes it really clear that the Lord heard their grumbling. And the text is drawing your eyes towards that so that you can see that you have a God who hears and a God who acts even when you're doing it from the wrong space. So to move on, verse 9, Moses tells Aaron to say to the people, hey, let's go and come before Yahweh. Let's come before the Lord, which I think is great. He's like, let's go take this to the Lord and see what happens. And so the people go, and they're by the cloud, and they're going to directly interact with God. And it tells you in verse 10 that as Aaron is talking, the people look towards the pillar, the cloud, in the wilderness. I want you to catch that. The text takes the moment to help you see that God is present with them in the wilderness. And they look, and I always kind of like try to put myself in the scene because if Aaron is talking and then they have to turn and see the presence of God, you know that there was one guy in the back that he kind of starts feeling the light and the glow and he's like, guys, guys, guys! (laughs) And they all turn together and see this. And then Yahweh speaks from that Shekinah glory cloud, but he speaks specifically to Moses to say to the people. And if you look at verse 12, I'm gonna show you in three parts kind of a paraphrase of what God says. 12a, he says, I hear your grumblings. 12b, he says, I got you covered night and day. You'll have meat and you'll be filled with bread. And in 12c, he says, you will know me, now having a daily reminder of presence. So he puts this challenge, but he's gonna provide. Now this could have been one of those amazing stories where the people of God in their obedience and their piety got down on their knees and they prayed and they cried out to God faithfully and dependently that he would bring manna and quail. But that's not the story we get. We get a bunch of men and women that start grumbling and that leads to this awesome story of blessing. So I want you to understand that there's not a formula (laughs) in grumbling to go, hey, if I grumble, God's gonna give me what I need. Now God actually shows us in scripture that we are allowed to petition to him repeatedly. Jesus does an amazing parable where he talks about a widow going to a judge and almost bringing her request so frequently that it becomes an annoyance and the judge grants her what she wants. And God goes, how much more will I do that if you keep coming to me? But that's a petition. That's a request, not a grumbling. So God provides in both approaches, but what we see more than anything is that God watches and hears And he acts in mercy, both when the people deserve it and when they don't. Why? Because he wants their trust. He wants the relationship with them that they'll be obedient. Now, the text tells us much more about this bread, right, about God's provision. So if we look quickly across verses 13 to 32, it's going to tell us a lot about this quail that comes and this bread from heaven. Now, we always read it as manna. What is it? Ah, man, we always do this joke all the time, right? I'm going to ruin your world. In the Hebrew, it is not called manna. It's called manhu, M-A-N-H-U, manhu. What happened is that later, they translated manna into Aramaic, and they called it, they, they translated manhu into Aramaic, and then they started calling it manna. And then in the manuscripts we have, they did what's called an anachronism, where they put the Aramaic term into the text. So it's not called manna, I just ruined your world. It's called manhu, and now you have to say it right or I'll correct you. So in verse 13, who, what? See, now it's all confusing. So, so in verse 13, we get the quail 
that's this one-off evening meal to tide them over, but you're going to find that the whole rest of the text is going to talk about the manhu, the bread. And so it's, it's, it's getting all this attention because it's unique. And not only is it unique, they're going to get it for 40 years. The quail is only for a night. It's going to come up again in the book of Numbers when they complain again. But the bread goes on for 40 years. And the focus of the text, if you look at verses 16 to 21, is not just on the description of it. It's on the quantity and the amount. And it uses this language of enough. Shava, you will be filled Every person will have as much as he or she can eat. That there's an omer for each person in the tent. Just so you know, an omer is about two quarts or 2.2 liters. Half a gallon per person per day that they get to eat. It says some gathered more, some less, not leaving any over, or the sun melted it. And if you look at verse 18, it says, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they can eat. Now, the text <clears throat> will actually tell us in verse 20, it'll give an instruction that we can't dismiss because it gives them a discouragement. What's that discouragement? Don't take in so much that you're just going to pig out and you're going to hoard it and be selfish with it. You only need enough for the day. Now, there's something happening there because God knows humanity and he knows the effects of sin. He knows we are people that function from greed. And we function from a desire to gather and acquire more and more. He knows that there are people, and we still would do it today, that if we started getting manhu right now, there's some of you that would be collecting it, putting it in mason jars, and selling it on Etsy and Amazon. <laughs> Side hustle, yes! And God's going, no! You need to learn how to trust on me day by day. And as followers of God who know his daily provision, we cannot constantly move into ways that are always about advantaging us to be materially, materially over others. And yet we have a culture that has trained us to do just that. So this is a challenge about being selfish and about amassing. And if you want to read more on that, read 2 Corinthians 8, verses 14 to 15, where Paul throws down on the people there about the same concept, about how our abundance is meant to supply need to others. This also kind of brings in that element that we get in the Lord's Prayer when it says, give us this day our... I mean, the reference to that is speaking of the same concept of having a measure necessary for life for one day. That we're asking God to provide just for one day. And how do you do that in a Costco mindset? <laughs> I mean, Seriously. How can we see that God is satisfying us for the day and not just until we die? He wants us to go to him every day. Now, the text does tell us a little bit about what manhu looks like. In verse 14, it tells us it's this thin, scale-like, flake-like thing that looks like frost on the ground. And verse 31 tells us it's like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And that people could bake it or boil it. So think sweet oatmeal, Right? That like has like the maple and brown sugar, but on crack. <laughs> or like mini pita-like scones that they're making and eating. And when you look at this description, that it's like this thin flake-like thing, like frost on the ground and it's white, it's so clear. And what one of my friends just told me on Thursday night, he's like, it's totally frosted flakes. <laughs> and I countered that and I was like, oh, I, think it's, I think it's special K. 
special M, I don't know. But anyways, it's giving us this, but it's just trying to make it clear as well that this is not just something that gave them the sustenance they need. This is something that was delicious food that had great flavor and a sugary taste. Numbers 11 will expand on that some more and say it looks like bedellium, which is this kind of yellowish gum resin that comes from a tree. And it will tell you how the people like cooked it. They went out and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And the people loved it. And there are so many fun theories that you can read and look up on how people think the man, Manhu came and how people accessed it. But I want you to jump over to verse 32 to 36 because it's going to give you this editorial comment about the memory of the manna being kept in the Ark of the Testimony alongside the covenant. That, that, that God's going to ask Aaron to put some of the manhu in a jar, and that's not going to go bad. It's not going to spoil. It's not going to melt. And he says, put it in the Ark of the Covenant. But the reason why this is an editorial comment is because they haven't built the Ark of the Covenant yet. That's going to come up soon. But it's kind of telling you they're going to hold on to it until that's built. And then it's going to be put right next to the covenant. Right next to the way that God's going to express a partnership and a relationship with the people. And he goes, I want you to remember my daily provision. We're going to put it in that box. And then look at verse 35. It says, the people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. That in Joshua 5.12, when they cross the Jordan and they enter into the promised land, the manhu stops, and now they have access to the bread of Canaan. Because now God's saying, I brought you to where you have daily provision again. This is where I've always been taking you. Now, we can't move on to the next episode without talking about two other verses that are extremely important to understanding this manhu. Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 to 3 Moses talks about this again, and he says, And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It was never about just sustenance. It was about being able to hear and be in relationship with the presence of God. Jesus quotes it when he's being tempted. But another important passage that we can't miss is John chapter six. Jesus does the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and everyone's like, do it again. That was awesome. Like we want more food. And this is what Jesus says in John 6, 27, 35, and 48. I'm gonna paraphrase the first line. He says, you guys have a choice in this life to either expend your effort on things that will last forever or on things that will spoil, rot, or decay. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Even the people in the Old Testament ate God-given bread from heaven and died. But here I am the living bread that comes down from God in heaven, and anyone who eats this real living bread, he or she will live forever. Where Jesus addresses this reality that we live in a mindset of overconsumption. We are trying to find everything and anything that's actually gonna give us peace and bring us wholeness and bring us fullness. And we chase after so much and it doesn't fill us and we grumble. And Jesus stands there with the people and he goes, I am the manhu. 
I am the manhu of life. I am the one person that can complete you. I am the one that you need. And you know what's interesting about that whole passage? Is that's when so many of the other disciples, not the 12, leave Jesus. Because they can't handle him talking about eating of his body and drinking of his blood. Now, there's a whole additional piece we have to skip over about a Shabbat lesson about Sabbath, where God's going to address the fact that, hey, I'm going to build in a teaching on this. And the main thing I just need you to hear, since we can't talk about it, is why is it important? Because these are people that have grown up in slavery, that have worked every single day. They didn't get a day off. And God goes, let me start bringing back into play what I started at Genesis 2 with a day of rest. And so there's a whole lesson on that, but we don't have time to talk about that. Let's move to episode three. And as we get into episode three and we're running out of time, I feel like I need to put the whole Hulu, Disney Plus, like, would you like to continue watching, right? Because we keep going through all these episodes. And if you don't, you can just leave. But, uh, but chapter 17, verse one, the people grumble against Moses again. And again, over water, they get to a place called Rephidim. And now it's the middle of the summer and there's a wadi over in the area of Rephidim that is now dried up. There's no water in it. And it tells you there that the people quarrel or they protest against Moses again. And when it says quarrel, it's not a heated argument. That's not the language it's using. It's actually language of a legal charge against Moses and therefore against God. It's accusatory saying, you deserve blame for putting us in this situation and we have a case against you. And look what they say in verse three. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses becomes worried enough that he feels fears that they're going to stone him and kill him. And he cries out, he takes it to the Lord. And, and I find that really interesting because now the grumbling of the people is starting to affect their leader. He's worried about his welfare and he doesn't bring them reassurance or assert how God's gonna take care of them. He just goes to God. And although God's gonna back up his leadership, this becomes wearying. Because their lack of confidence, their lack of trust is now putting a lack of confidence and trust in their leader. How do I know that's true? Because if you were to read Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13, you have the same exact type of story happen. The people get to a location in the wilderness, there's no water, and they grumble against Moses, and Moses goes out, and you'll see in a moment, in this passage, in Exodus 17, he's going to hit a rock, and water's going to come out. And in that instance, Moses gets a chance to do the same thing, but because he's frustrated, he's grumbling, he doesn't do exactly what God commands, because he's not supposed to hit the rock. He's just supposed to speak to it. And that becomes the thing that doesn't allow him to go into the promised land. And we have to pay attention to this that when our grumbling starts affecting our leaders, we need to learn how to shut our mouths <laughs> because this affects people. But let me take us into verse five so we can understand what's happening here. God's gonna tell Mo Moses to move ahead of the people with the staff that he used to strike the Nile and hold on to that. And he says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, which is a region, not a specific rock, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, two things I need you to catch here. One, when you hear rock, don't think of a boulder the size of the stage that Moses comes up to and hits and there's this like spring of water squirting out and everyone can go up one after the other and fill up their cups. No, you have to think 
cliffside, rock outcropping, because the region of Horeb is a region that's mountainous. And so he's walking up against kind of a rock outcropping. And when he strikes it, it's more like a waterfall coming out that lots of people can come up and fill up their stuff. How do I know that? Because when you move throughout the regions of Israel and Sinai, that's the type of rocks you see everywhere. You don't see like a massive singular boulder. So that's the first thing I want you to catch. The second thing is that this is a judicial scene. Remember, they made a quarrel with him, which was a judicial accusation against Moses. And how does God respond? He says, let's go to the rock. And look at what the text says. God says, I will stand on the rock at Horeb. Why? Why does God have to specify that he's going to stand on the rock? The people are making an accusation, a lack of trust. They're grumbling. And then God goes, hey, what you're going to do, Moses, is you're going to strike the rock that I'm on. Why? Because God's saying, I will take your accusation. I will take your blame. You can strike me. You can strike what I stand for. But guess what I'm going to give in return? Living water. I mean, there's a picture here of God already showing how he will take the hit of our human sin so that he can give us life and give us fullness. Now, if you look at verse 7, it drops this bomb that to me is so heavy because it says they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? See, the essence of all these grumbling narratives is a disregard for Yahweh's presence. Is God here or not? He must not be here and he must not care. And that's a real heart question. That's a real issue that a lot of us sit with. This inability to reckon with what does it mean to be in relationship with a God that's present. And this is where so much of Exodus and scripture takes us. It's into this question and reality about presence. That is God's intention across Exodus. That is God's intention across scripture. That God resides among us and he is present. Why do we doubt God's presence? See, I know this personally because if a lot of you remember, and if you don't, you're gonna learn it now. Last year, at this time, I went into the hospital with COVID, severe COVID. And I started getting oxygen that they kept increasing the liters that I was up to 60 liters per minute. And then by the, by the 14th, they moved me into the ICU ready to put me on a ventilator. And so many people here and outside of my relationships at Bridgeway were praying for me. But that's not the part that bothered me. The part that bothered me was the Wednesday to the Friday, Wednesday to the Saturday, where I sat in that ICU and I could not feel God's presence. That I was saying the same thing. Are you here among me or not? Do you hear? Are you here? Do you care? And I felt that absence, that I was speaking out loud in the room and I felt no sense of God's presence. And I was opening scripture and reading words and I felt no sense of the spirit unveiling anything. It was dark. I remember specifically texting Mark Hankel and and asking in the prayers that people were gonna be giving on the prayer night for my spirit more than my body. (laughs) 
And I'm supposed to, I'm the pastor, right? I'm supposed to be the guy that's like ministering to respiratory therapists and nurses in the office or in the, in the ICU. And here I am going, are you among us or not? See, this is not just the people of Israel that struggle with this. You struggle with it. I struggle with it. This is a very real wilderness experience that we will go through if we have not gone through it already. And a lot of people prayed, and I was healed. And I'm one of those few stories that I was healed miraculously within 12 hours. And that was such an awesome blessing, having doctors come in and being, oh, what's going on? Like, you're suddenly better. But the thing that blew me away was on the Saturday, being able to start talking and feeling the presence of God in my room. I mean, to, to have the moment where you know he's there and he is hearing you, and because of that, I could not stop talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> and I know the nurses are probably going, that guy's crazy. <laughs> but I mean, this is what God is constantly trying to do. Whether we grumble or not, he is trying to show you that he is present and there among you. These are what the narratives are showing. This is what happens in our lives. Opportunities to experience the presence of God. Now we have to keep going to another episode. <laughs> episode four. Would you like to keep watching? Right? And, and, and we're gonna, this is where you finally see a little bit of a turn. Because now they're going to go into a battle with the Amalekites. Verses 8 to 16. And the Amalekites is actually distant relatives of them because you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Isaac has two sons that are twins, Jacob and Esau. And Esau doesn't receive the birthright and the blessing. Jacob does. But Esau still goes and multiplies and has families. Well, his grandson is Amalek, and they become this nomadic invading group of the northern Sinai region. Well, Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19 actually expands on what happens, that they start attacking Israel, but they do it in kind of the cheapskate way. They attack in the rear with all the slowest people. Who's going to be in the rear of this entire group moving? The weak, the elderly, the slow, where you don't have the strength. And they're doing these little attacks. And so now Israel has to engage in full battle. And so Moses selects Joshua. This is the first time he comes on the scene to get guys together to go and fight. And then it's going to take us into this battle, but it's not going to tell you how many soldiers they have. It's not going to tell you what weapons they use. It's not going to tell you strategies and tactics. And this is everything I'm studying in my PhD. It focuses on exclusively on Moses, Aaron, and Hur. And that they are going to go up on the mountain and that Moses is going to hold up the staff of God. And that's so unique. That's so interesting because the focus is on that struggle to hold up the staff of God for a long period of time. And the text actually takes time to kind of take you through that Moses starts with a singular hand. The text is singular. To then he's using both hands to hold it up to then he's getting tired and his arms are getting weak so they have to sit down on a rock so that he can kind of keep it up. And then Aaron and her get on each side and they hold up his arms so that the staff can remain raised. Well, what's happening here? Some people will say he's praying, but that's not what people did, even the Israelites, in battle. They, did, they prayed, but they didn't pray like that. Anytime somebody held up something like that, that was symbolizing the strength of God as a banner, 
as a signal marker saying our God is present here with us. So that as the soldiers fought and they looked back and they could see the, the staff being held up, they're going, God's with us. His present with us. Let's keep fighting. But if Moses started dropping down and you look back and you're like, is God, wait, is God with us? Ah! You know, and you start freaking out. So it's meant to signify to the warriors the presence of God and to booster morale and the, of the forces so that they could set their sights on God on high and set their sights on his strength because it's only by his power that they could have even engaged and won that fight. And how do we know this? Because after the battle's done, they're gonna set up an altar. You look in the text and it's called Yahweh is my nesh or Yahweh nesh. Yahweh, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner, my signal marker. And then look at what else it says. It says, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. That as they went into this battle, the royal banner was the symbol of access to the throne of the king. And the king is always supposed to be the one that's gonna protect the people. And they're saying, we can remember that our God was present. Our God was there to protect us from the enemies. And that's also gonna give them a promise. As you keep wandering, I am present and there to protect you. And so they've learned about Yahweh Rophikah, the Lord our healer, and now they're learning about Yahweh Nesh, the Lord our banner. And they can be taking encouragement in that reminder. And if you notice in this episode, they don't grumble. They actually look to Yahweh's throne. They look to the reality of his presence. And what I love is they hold up one another. That's what's happening with the Aaron and her story. It's not about just one person. It's about all of us holding up that reality of God's presence together. This is not individualistic. It's community. You do this as a church together. Well, let me close this off with the final story, which we're not gonna get to do all of it. But, but after all of this, they're finally now at Horeb, the region where Sinai is. And it tells you that Jethro and Moses' family show up. So in verses 1 to 10, we remember that in Exodus 2 to 4, Moses lived outside of Egypt in the region of Midian, married a Midianite woman, had a Midianite-like in-laws, and his father-in-law Jethro shows up. And word had come through an oral network that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And so Jethro comes. And look at what happens in verses 8 and 9. Moses tells his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to the Pharaoh and to the Egyptian for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them and how the Lord had delivered them. So we have to assume that that's not like a three-minute summary, but that he told them everything we have read in Exodus 5 to 17. That's hours of recounting the story. But look at what else it says. Um, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. Not just in Egypt, but hey, and we got out, and after the Red Sea, the people wanted water, and they were complaining, and I threw a log in the water. It was awesome. And you know, he goes through all the hardship. Why? Because the hardship is just as formative as the powerful acts of deliverance. And so he tells him all of that. And it tells you that Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done in Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And I love this because Moses' emphasis is on rescue and Jethro's response is about rescue. And that is always what our testimony should be. This is how God has rescued me. This is how God has saved me. 
And this is even how he's grown me through my hardships. But look at verse 10. Jethro blesses the Lord who has delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of the Pharaoh and has delivered them from under the hand of the Egyptians. Oh, I already said that. <laughs> now I know, verse 11, that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So here you have a Midianite clan leader, often known as a priest, who now realizes that Yahweh is the one God. And he's like, I want to worship that God. Let's sacrifice to him. Let's have a communal meal with your leaders because this is all about what your God has done. And we get a chance to sit with Jethro to kind of approach these stories. We were not the people in the wilderness grumbling, but we hear the story preached or read, and we get a chance to see, are we going to respond like Jethro? Where we see all of this and we go, man, we need to praise God in awe and amazement. Now we have to skip over the whole part that Jethro is gonna give Moses wisdom on how to judge the people. But as you can see, the people, they have some work that needs to be done. And Moses is single-handedly having to deal with all of their drama. And so Jethro is gonna give them a whole bunch of advice, but we're not gonna talk about that. We're gonna conclude this. What are we discovering about God in our testing? This is about reconsidering how you consider God and his power and his presence. How have you treated God in this last week? When you read the news, when you're trying to handle stuff at your work and stuff with your family, and you know that our God is a powerful God, you know he's a healer, you know he's a banner, but do we live by that reality? Or are we just holding on to the fact that he saved me I receive salvation that in some time in the past and eventually I'll have eternal life? Or do I live aware of his presence and his provision day by day? That you will go home today and you'll do your stuff and then you'll go to bed and God's working while you're sleeping to make sure you have what you need tomorrow. How do you wake up with that reality? To do more than just believe that God has saved us, but to believe that he will provide for you daily because he's always present with you. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to live with a deficient knowledge of God's presence, that he's there day and night. I want to live with that reality that the New Testament starts making clear about Jesus, that Jesus is the one that can make bitter water sweet. He can work with your grumbling and he can work on your bitterness that Jesus was the better bread, providing you more than just daily provision, but eternal provision, that Jesus is the better rock that gives you living water. This comes up in Corinthians and Hebrews and in the Gospels, that Jesus fulfills all of this. If we can realize that Jesus is present in front of us, inside of us every day. And so we encounter and are, and are changed by not just a God who rescues, but a God who checks us and grows us in and out of every circumstance. I'm thankful for a God like that. I need a God like that. You need a God like that. And this all prepares us to hear the covenant that we'll get into next week. 
Now you can approach what it means to live under the way of God. And then a week after that, we're going to talk about the tabernacle, which is another picture of the presence of God there among the people. So I'm going to have the prayer team come forward, and I'm going to pray us out of this, but I hope that uh, this speaks to us right where we are at. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God who does immeasurably more than anything we ask or imagine, for being a God who hears even our grumblings and who reacts and who responds. Thank you for being a God that provides every day and is always working to show me and to show my brothers and sisters here that you are present. You can handle anything, anything that we see in our culture that we speculate and we get fearful and we get uncertain about, you can act with. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.